This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Ever since the coronavirus first came to our shores back on March the 5th, has it really been less than three months? South African views on government's response to the growing crisis have swung back and forth. Differing opinions have followed old lines of division and new divides have opened up around key questions. When is the government being decisive and strong and when is it acting in a way that tramples on fundamental rights? How much should leaders work patiently to win citizens over and when should they act and compel us to comply? And who decides how to strike the balance between the threat to our lives and the threat to our livelihoods? These questions and many others are not just relevant now, The answers we come up with will have a profound influence on the shape of our democracy in years to come. Welcome to Beyond Corona, South Africa and the world after the pandemic. This series is brought to you by Kaya FM in association with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. I'm John Perlman. In our third episode, has the COVID-19 pandemic threatened South Africa's dream of a capable democratic state? Or has it created opportunities to make this dream more substantial and more real? Joining me to explore these issues, we have two guests. Tuli Madonsela is a professor of social justice and law at the University of Stellenbosch and formerly South Africa's public protector. Tuli, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Joining us as well is David Bilchitz, who is a professor of fundamental rights and constitutional law at the University of Johannesburg. David Bilchitz, welcome to you as well. Great to be with you, John, and hi to the listeners. Let's set the scene with this excerpt from South Africa's lockdown soundtrack. I think South Africans, they are not taking the matter serious, so they are forcing the government to be more tougher, to be more rigid than asking South Africans for all of us to work. As we are here in the city centre where we started with the roadblock, I've never seen so much alcohol under the lockdown. Cases of alcohol, even drugs, cigarettes, people drinking, not just even taking, transporting drinking in the car so that's 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 how they've taken this first day they they don't tell us that uh, most of what we have seen they deserve this kind of 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 this day they deserve to have this leeway of of going out there definitely we'll have to look back and we find out if we're not supposed to go back to to five on some of these things and then there's been a different kind of message the course of these last two weeks Your lives have been severely disrupted. You have suffered great hardship and endured much uncertainty. We have closed our borders to the world. Our children are not in school. Businesses have closed their operations. Many have lost their income and our economy has ground to a halt. And yet faced with such daunting challenges, You, the people of South Africa, have responded with remarkable patience and courage for your cooperation, for your commitment, and above all, for your patience. I do wish to thank you personally. I wish to thank you for reaffirming to each other and to the world that we South Africans are a people who come together and unite at moments of great crisis.
Professor Maranzella, on the one hand, stern warnings from Police Minister Begi Tele of tough consequences if we don't behave. On the other, President Cyril Ramaphosa sounding calm and appreciative and calling for unity of purpose. Of the two different kinds of messages we've been getting during this period, which for you has been the stronger? I do think that President Ramaphosa's calm, conciliatory and uh, collaborative tone has brought the nation closer to government than those that are finger-pointing and, and treating people like children. I must quickly say, though, that I don't think it really means any offence. He's used to treating criminality, and, and the moment the law created crimes, um, his mindset was about Let's stop crimes. And the problem with that is that it, it treats the whole nation as a nation of criminals. And I'll get that later anyway to the whole problem with the sanctions in, in, in the regulations, directions, and, and guidelines. In that there is that sense, you're either a criminal or not a criminal. Uh, but I do think that that yeah, the tone of the Gitele barricades government to one side and ask the people on the other side. The president's tone, on the other hand, it is us on the same side and the coronavirus COVID-19 on the other side. David Bilchitz, I mean, the actions taken by government in response to COVID-19 across this huge range of things they've attempted may be well-intentioned, but are some of those actions potentially paving the way for anti-democratic practices and attitudes in the future, if, if we're not mindful and watchful? I think that's correct, uh, John. I think, look, we have to have a look that we have a major unprecedented crisis. And on the one hand, we have to feel for government in the sense that the government is with us and the government has an important duty to address this issue. And we must also recognize that there have been important positive measures. Uh, take, for example, uh, requiring people to wear a mask. This is a helpful intervention that can help prevent the transmission and also uh, being infected by the virus. At the same time, I think in your clips, we've heard different, uh, two different types of approaches. And my worry is that the stronger dominant one coming through is a, a entrenchment of certain modalities of the past. And what we might refer to as a culture of authority, that there is this sense that if the government says something, it must be obeyed no matter what. And the government hasn't got a duty to justify what it uh, comes up with in terms of regulations. And crucially, our constitutional democracy states that's not correct, that fundamentally authority may uh, must only be really followed when it can be justified. And some of the measures have, uh, John, you pointed out, uh, it, it, many South Africans have been wondering, what is the basis for these measures? Why do we need a curfew at night? Why are we restricted to three hours of being able to go out for exercise, to buying certain types of clothing and books? Uh, there just seem to be a number of, of, of regulations which no one has been fully able to understand and they haven't been fully explained. And I think, like Tulia said, in a way, this is not um, it's not the people versus the government. 
we're in this together. So the government can afford and should, as part of the very culture we're building in South Africa, to draw South Africans in to see us as part of the together fighting a very difficult disease yeah. and uh, and working in that way. So, so Tuli Maronsela, I mean, one of the things that makes this all very difficult is we haven't for many years uh, and possibly never had a particularly capable state. And isn't there a concern that for government officials who are not getting their core job done, there will be a comfortable now resorting to assertion, to authority, to saying, we do it this way because I say you must and the law allows me to do that, instead of winning people over by the quality of the service they offer? You are absolutely right. And and I would agree with David that the constitutional democracy enshrined in our constitution is one anchored in accountability and a culture of justification. But it is also a culture, it's also a a democracy that is meant to be anchored in democratic governance, which democratic governance or democracy are mentioned about 25 times in the Constitution. It is true that when you have inadequacies and you're unable to explain yourself, the easiest thing is to resort to authority. It happens with parents. And you hit the nail on the head when you say, we have been hit by the coronavirus, COVID-19, at a time when we're still building a capable state. That effort had begun during the time of President Nelson Mandela and um, I think President Abundegi, but in the last few years, the state has been hollowed out. And I'm uh, whether we've consent, we've been consent that there was state capture. It is a fact that the state has been hollowed out for several reasons. And one of the defects that confront us is that we have an act called the Disaster Management Act. Yes. We are the last country that should have been caught off guard by any disaster because the Disaster Management Act creates permanent structures an intergovernmental committee on disaster management. It's supposed to be on the alert, 365 and a quarter days. And then there's supposed to be an advisory forum in terms of Section 5, which is multidisciplinary. In this quick make process, we've ended up with an NHCC National Command Council, which initially was only the cabinet members. It didn't work because our state is semi-federal and it was excluding the provinces and municipalities. But the other mistake that it made was that they were being advised by bits and pieces of professionals here and there, mostly brought in on political affiliation. And with due respect to my colleagues from different political affiliations, competence has nothing to do with your politics. So that excluded a whole lot of people that could have brought in the right advice. And going forward, I do hope that the government will go back to those structures created in the air. And the advisory committee must be interdisciplinary. Yes. They can't have a different committee for SARPs, another one for justice, because a country is a system. And some of the contradictions have come from the fact that the guy who plans transport is not working with the guy who's planning health. Health 
tell it was said you can go shopping, but taxis can only carry emergency or essential workers. Now it said, okay, we want all essential workers working. Oh, but transport can only operate in certain hours. Right. And yet hospitals have shifts that are different from that. So I think the issue of a capable state is going to confront us and those in universities like ours need to to step in and to help government to plug the gap. David, Tuli Maronsela referred to the National Command Council, and I, I want to talk to you a little bit about language, because a lot of the tension in this situation is about the way people express themselves and convey information. So for some people, uh, the word command uh, makes people nervous. They, it, it sounds militaristic. Other people who have felt that the state has been indecisive and incapable are delighted to hear somebody say they're in command. Do we have to accept that actually South Africans are very divided around this issue, that some people actually would like a little bit of, dare I say it, authoritarianism? Yeah, it's difficult, John. I think I agree with you. Actually, I've been troubled by the notion of a command council. It actually has no, that language has no space in a democracy. Um, It does also seem to be the case that also people do want some kind of guidance. So you can take, uh, you know, in the United Kingdom, the uh, government uh, basically said, you go back to work, uh, but we're not quite sure how you're going to get back to work. And then everyone, you know, was completely uh, at sea about how things were going to work. So there is a need for guidance, but guidance doesn't mean authoritarianism. And that's important. I think uh, the government can issue measures. These No one is against government doing that, but it needs to justify the measures that it does. And it needs to provide us with an understanding of why it's doing what it does. So in, interestingly enough, as Tuli mentioned, the, the uh, Disaster Management Act actually does have a number of structures and they don't sound as, as as frightening as a command council. And there are some real questions. Why is the government not really shared with us some of the information underlying the decisions that have been made? Um, we've heard that science is being listened to, but is that true? Because we see a number of scientists coming out and saying, well, actually, there's no basis for some of what you're doing in the science. Um, and so there is a concern that um, in this desire to command, there's actually not so much thinking going on or not perhaps um, uh, you know, well, rigorous measures being taken at times. Um, and I think part of that also comes from the structure. So I must say, I think some of the problems lie in the lack of um, scrutiny by the public and perhaps other institutions that is enshrined in the act as well. And um, I think that's an issue we might want to discuss further, but um, the role of parliament in this, uh, in a way the act sidelines parliament and that leaves behind a real crucial check and real crucial opportunity for debate around the measures that are taken. Tuli, I mean, many South Africans arguably would like a tougher government. And, and those people might say that a liberal democracy is enshrined in our constitution has not served them well. We hear this in discussions around illegal immigration, how drug dealers should be dealt with, corruption, violence against women. Is this not going to prompt, as we move away from the immediate emergency of COVID-19, a fundamental discussion among South Africans about what kind of government they want, that they actually would love to have a National Command Council, for example, dealing with unemployment? It does appear that um, when there is trouble, John, 
people would like to believe there is a big brother out there who can take care of things for them. And that's why strong men, governments, uh, emerge in the world. They would often emerge in times of crisis. We got Hitler in the middle of a crisis and, and, and many others. And there is a risk that at the end of this COVID-19, we will get that. And people would say in times of crisis and or post-crisis in the aftermath to solve the problem, we do need a benevolent dictator. I've heard that in, even in some of the democracy circles where the Tuma Foundation participate, people saying post-poverty uh, reconstruction requires a benevolent dictator. Here's the deal. A dictator has never been benevolent. Yeah. It's just a misnomer to say a dictator can be benevolent. Look at China. Uh, but closer home, Rwanda, a country I love uh, and which I often refer to if you're looking at decisive, visionary and strategic leadership. But that benevolent dictatorship is only benevolent if you don't live in that country. If you live there and you can't exercise your liberties, it's a different story. But just the last thing to say, again, going forward, people are not elected into government because they know everything, yes. because they're experts in everything. So the whole idea of having a democracy is not just only to make sure that all of our voices are taken care of, but it's also to make sure that the solutions we come out with are responsive. Let's just take one regulation that has come out of this command and control arrangement. Regulation 18 has decided that in funerals, we can have 50 people at funeral, but then it decides who can attend the funeral. I'm gay. My family has disowned me. My only family is the gay community. You know what? In terms of that act, I will be buried as a pauper alone yes. because only members of my family are alive. And two days ago, somebody needed to have her in-laws come and bury her parents, one of her parents. The ex says, no, your in-laws, your, your husband's mother and father can't come to bury your father. It's ridiculous, but not because government is mean. Is that if you think you have answers to everything, you're not wise. So, David Bilchitz, I, I want to stay with this theme we're on and, and, and ask you this. It seems to me that there is a lot of area between um, a consensus-based democracy, which many South Africans, I would argue, see as indecisive. Things are constantly referred for further discussion to committees, commissions, and so on. And the kind of extreme authoritarianism that Tuli's just been talking about, isn't there something in the middle that we might take out of this and say, wow, what was it during COVID-19 that allowed the hitherto dysfunctional Department of Water and Sanitation to actually get water to the people in, in Puta de Chaba? I mean, can we not take the best of the decisiveness of this time and in some way make that part of, uh, of the, the fabric of our democracy rather than an exception? John, exactly. I agree. Um, decisiveness and capability uh, is not uh, equivalent to authoritarianism. And it's important to see that. And I think I want to point out to people that this crisis originated, as many people will know, in China. 
and China's culture of secrecy on pain of criminal sanction is now being investigated for, in fact, suppressing information about the spread of the virus. That might have saved the global spread and countless lives. So people say, well, China did well. It kept it contained. It didn't, in fact. It spread across the world. Uh, uh, but it actually, its actual authoritarianism led to the crisis that we have at the moment. And authoritarianism also comes together. That culture of secrecy, that culture of lack of accountability leads to a serious corruption problem, right? And it leads to the inability to be able to detect issues in the policies that are being uh, implemented. So that is no solution. And I think when you actually look at the numbers worldwide, it is th those performing best actually seem to be those with a capability, but also an openness. So South Korea has perhaps the best record in the world, or at least one of the best, with 11,000 cases, only 32 new cases yesterday, and only 263 deaths in the whole time. It is a democracy. It has a high degree of obedience to the law. Um, its response was very efficient, and it also used a lot of technology. And importantly, its measures on technology were less intrusive than South Africa. In fact, it did allow for tracing of people, but it de-identified the individuals, uh, whereas South Africa allows for people to be actually identified about where they are and for harsh consequences to come upon them if they fail to comply with regulations. Another case is Germany as well, which has done relatively well in these cases and never really required people not to go out or have an army on the streets Yes, uh, or had the army on the streets. Their constitutional court, in fact, required protests to continue. So here we have examples of democracies which are capable, which have been able to respond, um, and they have not taken on board uh, uh, terribly authoritarian measures. And so I think that's really important. And we need to try and understand what is it that we need to do to build a capable state. And that isn't to go back to the dark days of the past, but it is to ensure that we have uh, proper management, good people in positions of authority and, uh, and actually responsive policies, as well as actually taking on board some of the things yeah. that have been done now, such as setting of deadlines, targets, and various other issues which help improve delivery of services. John Pullman is exploring the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the trajectory of political and socio-economic development. Tuli, I mean, isn't part of the problem, though, that South Africans are not terribly law-abiding? And I'm not just talking about uh, township unrest that flares up. I'm also talking about what we're seeing in the suburbs, where there's a kind of self-justification for these little breaches of the law that people can uh, excuse themselves by saying, well, these are not terribly important. Have we not, to some degree, as a country, brought this upon ourselves that we don't stop at red lights, that we are happy to pay bribes even though we condemn statewide corruption and so on? It's true. We're not particularly a law-abiding country. <laughs> to put it mildly, um, yes. But it has a history. Yes. It has a history of laws being unjust, unfair and unreasonable and a state doing the same thing. And I think, let's be fair to South Africans, when the first announcement was made about us staying at home and doing the right thing, the majority of South Africans stayed at home for that 21 days. There were a few auditors 
when the president announced an extension to make it 35 days, the majority still did the same thing. When the president came back to say we're now announcing an indefinite lockdown and we will um, we will adjust as we go and, and, and go to lower levels of alertness, there was a problem. And what was the problem? It's reasonableness and lack of justification. The information given to justify has not been sufficient, and also there's been contradictions. If you read the book, The Little Prince, the yes. king there talks about talk, talks to them uh, uh, to the little prince and tells the little prince that he doesn't give his subjects a command that they will have extreme difficulty in complying with, like telling them to go throw themselves in the sea because they are going to disobey. So the total lockdown where for days and days people couldn't exercise, mental health took over and and people took things into their own hands. So I do think, yes, um, in a country where people are not used to obeying the law, the last thing you want to do is to bear them. You you want to reason with them about why this law is good for them and why they should co- cooperate, and which is the language the president has been using. What you need to do is to systematize that language throughout government. David, I mean, let, let, let's go back to some basics about our, our constitutional framework. Um, as people debate and argue about what's fair or not in this lockdown, people say, it is my right. Now, no rights in our constitution are absolute. There's a hierarchy of rights, as I understand it. And they've got to be tests uh, around proportionality, uh, how justifiable the assertion of a right is against others and so on. What's the guiding principles that we should be thinking of as we weigh up these what have become very heated debates about your right and mine? Thanks, John. And it is very important to understand that there are actually constitutional principles here. And just to mention that we don't actually have a hierarchy of rights in South Africa. All rights are equally valuable, but obviously they sometimes come into tension with one another. And when rights are uh, infringed or potentially infringed, it is possible for the government to justify that. Right. The government can restrict freedom of movement in a in a context of uh, a major public health disaster like we have at the moment. But there are tests that it has to pass. And I, I want to explain briefly, perhaps in simple language, what those are. The first is there must be a law which authorizes it, right? And that's important because it allows for the debate around the issues. The second is there must be the identification of a strong purpose that can justify the invasion of a right. A right is such a crucially important dimension of ourselves and there has to be a strong purpose in this case in COVID there are strong public health purposes but the inquiry doesn't end there one has to first have a look at does the actual regulation for example relate to the purpose does for example saying you can only buy educational books relate to the purpose of trying to protect people against health uh, 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 acquiring the disease? Probably not. So it falls on that ground. Another inquiry that we have in the law is what we call the necessity inquiry. Are there alternatives that could achieve the purpose, but that do not affect the right as much, right? So uh, could we ban house parties at night 
without imposing a curfew on the whole population where you have to take a permit and uh, in order to go out right um and so this this essentially says that you put in place the least restrictive measure on rights you do as little as possible to infringe rights okay and i think this is one of the big tests that hasn't been passed really by the government right many of the restrictions seem to have gone beyond what they need to have done in order to protect our health and lastly there has to be a weighing up of costs and benefits do the does the public health measure that's being taken right outweigh the heavy effect on rights and i think tuli gave a good example right yes we couldn't confine everyone to homes right to protect their physical health but then we have terrible effects on their mental health and other dimensions of their lives right and that seems to mistake in some sense fundamentally humanity is just being concerned with pure survival rather than being able to live a livable life a flourishing life yeah and so those critical tests are the ones we think about in constitutional law when evaluating a measure that limits a right Tully, moving forward, um, there will be measures that have been taken. For example, the restriction on alcohol sales comes immediately to mind that some people in government, and they've been airing this already, will say, boy, that worked well. Let's continue with that uh, into the future, even if uh, the exigencies of a pandemic no longer demand it. How do we as a society go about making sure that things that were needed during this time don't become nice-to-haves and let's-have-thems uh, in the future if they don't actually fit with our, with our constitutional order? Thank you. What we, we need to do is to restore democracy. Earlier on, we spoke about whether the, the policy responses to the coronavirus COVID-19 may compromise um, sustainable democracy or democracy as we know it. I think there are organizations globally, among them NET, the National Endowment for Democracy, that have started a, a conversation about saving democracy. On April 27, the Tuma Foundation had the same theme because democracy does not get eroded in one day. Yes. It starts with small things that we think, let, let's let it slide, because in the circumstances, this is maybe justified. And I insist that there's nothing in the Constitution or in the Disaster Management Act that allows government to suspend democracy. And um, even the curtailment of rights or restrictions on limitation of rights has to be done having in mind justification and reasonableness in an open democratic society based on human dignity, quality, and freedom. So whatever government does, it still has to maintain democracy. And, and we can't start insisting on democracy later. We have to start now. And yes, there is a danger that uh, government may by decree then say people can't do one to do. I don't drink, I don't smoke, but I do respect other people's rights. I also understand process. 
And I think one of the things government needs is also having more development experts and social scientists, not just economics, in the process who understand the unintended consequences of changing things abruptly. And things need change management. It would be nice not to have people drink and destroy themselves and destroy others. It would be nice to have a better managed society, but we will need a proper change management. And just in ending on this one, one of the mistakes governments all over the world are making is a binary approach to the problem. We keep being told that we have to to choose between life and livelihoods or balance between life and livelihoods. It's not so. We have to balance between life, livelihoods, and social well-being. Because it's not just about health and money or in the economy. It's also about what is life. Life is life that is worth living, which includes the ability to go to school, the ability to be involved in the government of your country, the, the ability to, uh, to have a joyful yes. life and mental health. David Bilchitz, if we're going to assess uh, the state of South Africa's democracy in two, three, four years' time, I don't really know the timeline. It would be useful to benchmark it against the current state of South Africa's democracy and against one measure. Uh, It doesn't look that good in the last general election, the 2019 elections. 17 million South Africans voted, 18 million South Africans didn't vote, and only 20% of eligible first-time voters even registered to vote. And the question that flows out of that for me is this. Might we see a democratic dividend out of this time of a different kind, which is not measured in votes, but is measured in concern for other citizens, in a willingness to cooperate across sectors, in volunteerism, in activism, in other ways, and that we might, even if we are seeing our constitution stressed and stretched, might in some ways have a healthier democracy out of this because people think, wow, I can actually do things. And in fact, if I don't, things could be much worse. Well, John, you point out the very encouraging uh, response by civil society in South Africa and also a number of people in business, etc. And the recognition that we are actually really a society and we need all aspects of the society to cooperate together. Uh, We need the businesses to ensure social distancing when everyone goes back to work. We need them to try and retain as many workers as possible. And even if that means reducing their profits significantly, we need labor unions uh, to be involved in protecting the rights of workers, but also being reasonable around uh, what, what would be required. We need religious leaders, NGOs, everyone in the society uh, to to work together. And I think this is one very strong aspect of South Africa is that we have a strong civil society and that often where the government has gone AWOL, so to speak, uh, we found that, um, that the civil society has brought, in a sense, a measure of reasonableness back. And that is a really strong, hopeful uh, foundation for our future. I do want to say something, though, about what you said is that there is a problem when people aren't seeing the formal structures of democracy as the way in which to uh, give vent to their voice. 
And I think this is a failing in South Africa. We need to ensure that the democratic structures actually represent people. People feel they're able to approach the structures. Thule did a fantastic job in broadening an institution, the public protector, to be seen as something where people could go to and and express themselves where the government was failing them. And we need that kind of institutional capacity to be built in the formal democratic spaces of local, provincial and national government. And we need to think carefully about how to improve the participation there, as well as in the other forms of institutions like Chapter 9s in our country. Uh, because we did a survey a few years ago, yes. and many people felt, saw, felt they didn't have the capacity to address government or to participate within government, and that's a very big concern. So we have a strong civil society. I hope that continues, but let's find a way to translate that into a responsive democratic government and responsive structures. Tuli Marancella, last one for you. I mean, out of all of this, this, this profound crisis we're in, Will we emerge with a stronger democracy, a stronger sense of our place in the broader constitutional framework? Or do you think we might come out troubled and with significant challenges? The signs suggest that we will come out with a stronger democracy for two reasons. One is government keeps listening. If you look at when things started, government consulted, and then they stopped consulting, and they went with this command approach. And as civil society pointed out challenges with the regulations, and as civil society pointed out the need to be included, we're seeing government moving back to working with society again, as the president has been meeting with various sectors. So there seems to be the ability to listen and the ability to correct. The other thing that says to me that the future might be good is the issue of social justice. Before the coronavirus, COVID-19, I had never heard even the president mention the word social justice. Doesn't matter that it is entrenched in the preamble to the constitution, and the constitution says that we are. Uh, as part of healing the divisions of the past, we're establishing a society founded on democratic values, social justice, and the advancement of human rights. I've never heard people in government talk about that. I've never heard people in government speak very decisively about the need to end poverty and inequality and to integrate those considerations in policy design. We're hearing that, and we're hearing government talking about a future where it won't just respond to COVID-19. The final policy will also look at cementing the transformation of our society into a society of shared prosperity and a society of equals. However, we can't put all of our eggs in the basket. Um, So another factor that shows that will come out better is that civil society is moving from just giving food and helping with relief. There's more and more civil society conversations about shaping democracy and insisting on adherence to our constitutional values. And in any event, when all else fails, we will be a better society because if we don't make sure that we match our relief with the needs of the people who have been displaced from income, 
the people who are hungry whilst they were working for themselves, we are going to get a revolution. That on its own might improve society. I hope to God that we don't end up with a revolution. I hope to God that we're all smart enough to shape democracy in such a way that there's a better life for all. Professor Tulima Ronsela, Professor David Bilchitz, thanks to both of you for joining us on Beyond Corona. This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation.